You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Well, good morning, and it's good to be here with you this morning. Good attendance today, and it's a real privilege and a joy to be here at Heritage Baptist Church. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, my wife and I have a real love for this church and uh, started coming to the Winter Revival uh, several years ago and uh, have enjoyed our friendship with the Atwoods and now the Chays. Uh, and every time we come here, we feel like, we feel like we've come home uh, because this church is so similar to our own church. And uh, so it's a real privilege to be with you today uh, for Sunday School. I uh, hope the lesson will be a blessing to you. Uh, we're going to discuss not a fable, but a book proven stable. Amen. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Heavenly Father, help us this morning as we study this passage. Help us to see what a miracle we have in our hands when we hold our Bibles, to love it, to trust it, uh, to believe in its inspiration and preservation. I pray that you'd guide us into all truth this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To give some background information, Second Peter is called a general epistle because it was written to a wide audience as opposed to an individual person or an individual church. And 2 Peter was written around 65-66 A.D. at the end of a very important era in the history of the church, and that was uh, the end of the ministries of Peter and Paul. Uh, around that time, Nero uh, was persecuting the churches, and uh, both Peter and Paul would be executed about the same time by the Roman government. And so that marked a watershed in church history uh, because these two mighty servants of God, these two mighty shepherds uh, that had served the Lord for so many years, the, the two of the most prominent, the two probably the two most prominent men uh, in the four decades after the, the resurrection of Christ would be taken off the scene at the same time. And uh, both Peter and Paul recognized the dangers that were facing the churches at that time. You can see that in 2 Peter and 2 Timothy. They both recognized that the wolves were at the door, so to speak. Uh, on two fronts. First, you had violent persecution from the pagans, and then you had doctrinal infiltration from false teachers. And so the churches were facing a double danger. Uh, persecution on one side, outside the church, infiltration, corruption inside the church. And so both Peter and Paul in their last epistles spent a lot of time pointing the people back to the written Word of God. And if there's anything that's going to help us to stand strong in these times in which we live, we have to stand strong on the Word of God. We have to stand strong on this book. And to have a sure knowledge of it is what will help us to not only be strong when facing a world that hates Christianity. And folks, this world is no friend to the Christian. Okay? The, the hands that crucified Jesus are not going to pat us on the head and, and appreciate our ministry. And uh, so there is a rising persecution against the churches today. 
but also the, the rise of false doctrines and heresies in our world and the watering down of key truths and, uh, and this uh, really, uh, even among Baptist churches, this watering down of, of, of doctrinal uh, emphasis and just accepting almost anything that comes along and, and not having a strong doctrinal stand. And so Peter understood that he would soon be taken off the scene he spoke of in verse number 12, he said, Wherefore, I would not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. And so here was uh, churches and Christians that already knew the truth, but Paul, uh, Peter knew it was necessary to continually emphasize the same truths again and again and again. You know, folks, just because we already know the truth doesn't mean we don't need to be reminded of the truth. Uh, and one thing in pastoring, I've been, I started a church, we've been pastoring for 20, this is our 20th year, October will be our 20th anniversary, and uh, you know, some of my folks have been there 19, 20 years, uh, and yet I've learned something, you have to keep preaching the same truths. For one thing, there are no new truths, right. <laughs> so you're either going to have to preach something that's old or something that's not true. Something else I've learned is you have to keep preaching the same things because some are, some are hearing it for the first time. And so even though you're, you may be well-grounded and been in church for a long time, there may be someone in this room that has never really heard these things explained and it's going to click with them for the first time. So first, they're, they're hearing it for the first time. Secondly, there are some who are understanding it for the first time. They've heard it many times, but now it finally is going to click with them. Uh, I was in a deer stand a few years ago in Ozona, Texas with a, a layman. It was at a preacher's meeting, but there was a, a, I was paired with a layman. And I, I'm not much of a hunter. I'll go if you provide the stand, the deer stand, the, the lease, uh, and if you'll gut it for me. <laughs> in other words, I'll, I'll point the gun and shoot. <laughs> and uh, so now I'm with a, with a, a layman. Uh, he worked in the oil industry out near Midland. And he said, he said Pastor, he said, I've been in the same, I grew up in this church. This man's in his, his uh, late 30s. He said, I, my family got into this church. I grew up in this church. Now I'm married and I'm raising my family in the same church. And I've had the same pastor for 35 years. And he said, I told my pastor recently, he said, Pastor, I know you've been preaching these things my whole life, but I'm just now starting to understand some of the things you've been preaching all these years. And he said, I want you to know that so you'll be encouraged to keep preaching the same things because there are some who are hearing it for the first time, there are some who are understanding it for the first time, and then all the rest of us, we need to be reminded of these things continually because of the downward pull of the flesh and the world. We need to be stirred up by being reminded of these doctrinal truths. And so he said, I, I want you to remind you of these things, put you in remembrance of these things, though you already know them, and even though you're already established. Verse 13, yeah, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. So Peter knew that he was going to be dying soon and uh, would be uh, making his departure, uh, laying aside his tabernacle, and that's all our bodies are, <clears throat> is a temporary tabernacle, a tent for the soul. And sooner or later, we're going to lay these aside and be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. And so I want you, he said, I want to remind you of these things because I don't want your, your faith doesn't need to be in Peter. Your faith needs to be in the written word of God. Okay. Now we thank God for great preachers in our lives. I've had some wonderful preachers in my life. Brother Bob Smith was my pastor. I know he's preached here before. 
And I know you had Brother Gomez in recently, and he's, he's helped me from afar many times listening to him and some of the great preachers that come through this church. But our faith is not in men. Okay? Our faith is in the written Word of God. And I told my church recently, I said, if every preacher I've ever looked up to fell into sin tomorrow or apostatized tomorrow, it would not change the fact that what this book says in black and white is what it says. Okay? So I, I, when I, I've seen preachers fall, and I've seen them go to jail, and I've seen all kinds of things happen in my Christian life. But that doesn't change what this book says in black and white. Okay? So when a preacher falls, I'm not shocked. Well, I mean, man at his best state is altogether vanity. But that book is what will last forever. It's this book that will endure forever. And so our faith must be in the Word of God. Thank God for preachers who help us and provide a good example. We must grow to the point where our faith is in this book and not in a man. If a man falls, your faith does not need to fall. That's what I'm saying. Or if a man dies, you know, and no longer on the scene. Now he's with the Lord, you know. We keep on going on because we still have the same book, okay. So that's what it, Peter was saying. Now, Peter's goal in writing Second Peter, and here's your first blank if you're following along in the handout was to anchor the believer to the written Word of God. The written Word of God. Men live and die, but the Word of God endureth forever. And so our faith is in that. Number three there, the English-speaking believer can have confidence in the King James Bible. The King James Bible. Now, just to give you a summary on why I, I use the King James, why your pastor uses the King James, and why we take such a strong stand on that, even though it's not very popular today. Uh, a summary of the main problems with the new versions, I'll give you three. Number one is corruption. Corruption. The new versions come from corrupt texts. Uh, if you study that out, you'll find they come from, from Catholic manuscripts that are, that are themselves extremely corrupted. Uh, they are, the, te- the, the translations in these new versions are extremely corrupted. Folks, to, to make it simple, I don't want a Bible that is missing words, verses, paragraphs, okay? I do not want a Bible that takes, in, that takes out the entire end of Mark 16. I do not want a Bible that takes away 1 John 5, 7, which gives us the, the clearest passage on the Trinity. I do not want a Bible that takes away Acts 8, 37, which, te- what must I do to be, uh, uh, excuse me, what doth hinder me to be baptized? You know, I don't want the answer taken out. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I don't want a Bible that goes from verse 37 to verse 39, and does it even tell you why? Okay? I don't want a Bible that, has, that changes words because words mean things and that changes the meaning of the verse, which then changes the doctrine. So I, I don't want a Bible, just to be real simple, I don't want a Bible that has, that has missing words, missing verses, because some quote-unquote scholar that you don't know or know anything about said that well, in, the, in the most ancient manuscripts, that's a lie. Okay? The most ancient Line is the, is the Texas Receptus, which is in complete agreement with our King James Bible, because our King James Bible comes from it, not from the corrupted Catholic manuscripts that were discovered later. So, <clears throat> corruption, that's a problem. All right? I, I want a Bible that is not corrupted by men's ideas. I want a Bible that is translated textually, not, not what I think it should say, as opposed to what it actually does say. And the second blank there would be confusion. All these new versions bring confusion. Uh, you know, you go to the bookstore and there's 400 Bibles. And you listen to one preacher and he's preaching a whole message on a text based on a word or that's not even in your Bible. It just brings confusion. Why don't we just have one Bible? You know, if you and I are here together and we're, we're discussing something, maybe we're arguing about a doctrine, but we both have the same Bible. 
then we can argue about what the text actually says. Okay? Whereas, you know, so if you don't have the same Bible, you, you just have confusion. And the third reason is copyrights. Conf corruption, confusion, copyrights. Who owns the Scriptures? They're the Lord's words. Why should I have to ask permission to, to, to print the NIV, the, uh, you know, or any of these other, the, the ESV. The ESV is the most popular one now. It's in line with the NIV and the A, all these, they're all the same. And uh, so, <clears throat> copyrights, why, why sh you know, I, I've written a few books. I mean, they're not bestsellers or anything, but anything that I write is copyrighted because I'm the author of it. So you can't just take my, my words because I'm the author. Well, Thomas Nelson is not the author of the Bible. So they don't have the right to own it. Okay? So my King James Bible is called Public Domain. Anyway, you can take that and print it. You can run it off your copy or the whole thing. You can print it off your computer. You can download it. You can do whatever you want to because it's not owned by some company making money on the newest version they can sell to a gullible. Or I shouldn't say gullible. The fact is people are just not being taught the truth. I mean, it's not that people are not smart. It's that preachers are not telling them the truth about these things. Some very smart people just, they don't know. They've never been exposed to these topics. So corruption, confusion, copyrights. In contrast, the King James Bible contains purity. Purity. You have a pure translation from a pure text. Okay? Pure translation. The second blank is precision. Precision. What people complain about with the King James is actually what makes it so precise. So, well, you know, all the these and thous. Well, you get used to the these and thous. Hey, I didn't grow up in church either. I got saved. My first, my first Bible was a New King James, okay? I didn't know any better. And, uh, you know, and then at Christmas, my, my dad, who was completely out of church and wasn't even saved, he went to the bookstore to buy me a Bible. And uh, the, the, the kid at the counter said, what version do you want? My dad's like, where did all these versions come from when he was a kid? He hadn't been to church in 30 years. He said, I don't know. We've used the King James when I was a kid. And so he got me a King James. That was my first King James Bible. And, uh, but, you know, you get used to these things. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. If God says he's talking to thee, then he's talking to you. If it says you, he's also talking to you. <laughs> but actually, it's precision. Okay? And you can really break this down. You can see that these and the thous are actually giving you the singular or the plural. Okay? If it's a thee or a thou, it's an individual. Okay? If it's you or ye, it's plural. Now, we in Texas would say uh, you or y'all or all y'all, right? So, be you or y'all or all y'all. <laughs> That's precise, isn't it? And uh, so, the King James, it, it, it carries that over. And someone says, well, it's just like Shakespeare. Have you ever read Shakespeare? Shakespeare is 10,000 times harder to read than your King James Bible. And, uh, but it, pre it preserves that precision. And uh, then you have the S's and the verb endings. If thou believest, he that believeth. But all that simply carries over the Greek verb tense or the Hebrew verb tense. And it makes it precise. Those who know Spanish, that you understand the, the verb conjugations and adding the oblomos. Uh, yeah, I, I took two years of Spanish and I can almost order at Taco Bell. All those verb conjugations. Well, the King James carries that over, which makes it uh, a perfect Bible for translating into other languages. And it has been hundreds of times translated into other languages. 
And so I have a precise Bible. And brother, when I want to be precise on my doctrine, I want a precise translation, not a guesstimate translation. Okay? So it is pure precision and then power. There's just power in this book. Life-changing, family-changing, nation-changing power. What have we seen in our churches since we've departed from the Word of God? We have seen corruption. We've seen confusion. We've seen materialism. We've seen worldliness. We've seen a lack of revival. And where do we see people growing and, and really changing their lives and their families? We see it where the Word of God is still being preached and taught faithfully. There's power in this book. And so those, that's just a summary. I, I reject the new versions because of corruption, confusion, and copyrights. I stick to my King James Bible because of purity, precision, and power. Now, let's talk about the primary source of the Scriptures in verse 21. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the great question is, is the Bible the words of men or is it the words of God? Well, I believe it is the words of God. And that holy men of God were, were used to write or speak the Scriptures, but it was in fact the words of God being given. Your first blank there is, Many different men were used, but they were all holy men of God. And God did use men. He set His Word into the context of human lives and situations, which makes it more relatable to us, doesn't it? Makes it more approachable and understandable. Uh, there's nothing like the Bible. Nothing like the Bible. Um, moved means carried along like a wind fi fills the sail and moves a ship. So that their words were ultimately God's words or what God wanted included. Okay? And so that's what inspiration means. And, and certainly God used men and there's different styles. I, I kind of compare that to, you know, if I use this, this fountain pen, it's going to have one style of ink and one look to it. And if I use a, if I use a marker, it's going to look differently. If I use a calligraphy pen, it'll look different. If I use a ballpoint pen... And God used Moses, and he, 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 that comes across one way, and Paul another way, and Jeremiah another way. And God can certainly use their personalities, and that shines through in the Scriptures. But ultimately, it is the Spirit of God that was moving these men so that what they wrote or what they spoke, which was written down, was in fact the inspired words of God. That's the basis of our faith in this book. If this book's not inspired, well, why are we here? Okay, so it's the, it is given by the Holy Spirit of God. I taught Bible college for 12 years. And I taught most of the Old Testament. My students know one thing. Every book we went to, you know, you have your summary and you have your author. Who's the author and the dates and everything. And every one of my books, the author is the Holy Spirit of God. The writer might have been Paul or John or Moses, but the author, the originator, is the Holy Spirit of God. And we just have to understand that. All right, let her be there. I'll give you seven reasons to believe the Bible is God's Word. And again, this may be very familiar, but... Peter is telling us things we need to be reminded of. Seven reasons to believe the Bible is the Word of God. You know, believing the Bible is not a blind leap of faith. There are actually reasonable reasons to believe that Bible is the Word of God. All right, number one, the Bible's unique construction showing us the work of one mastermind. You know, God could have given the Bible all in one, through one person. Instead, God spread it out over 1,500 years using an estimated 40 different people to write it on three different continents. 
beginning with Moses and ending with John. And you have books being written in Babylon, books you know, from, the, from Africa and Middle East and, and Europe. And yet when you put it all together, 1,500 years, 40 different writers, uh, all these different topics, all these different themes, places, people involved. And you put it together and it's like the Lord's coat woven without seam. Isn't that amazing? And so you take from Genesis to Revelation, you see how it all fits together. And you say, that's not one man's writing. That's, that's God who put all this together and inspired all this together. And uh, so that unique construction, the work of one mastermind. Number two, the Bible's archaeological and historical accuracy. The noted archaeologist Sir Nelson Glick said, as a matter of fact, and by the way, he spent over 40 years digging in the Middle East. He said, as a matter of fact, however, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference or contradicted a biblical reference. And uh, so, you know, every, every time they stick a shovel in the ground, they find something that backs up the Word of God, but they never find anything that disproves it. Nothing. And so you read some older books. I know your pastor and I, we have older books, and you see sometimes they'll say, well, you know, there's never been any evidence for this character in the Bible or that character in the Bible. You know, for a long time they said, there's no evidence whatsoever that Pontius Pilate ever existed. And then some archaeologist with a little brush and a little shovel one day un uh, uncovers a marble slab that says Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. But you know, it was in the Bible the whole time. It's in the Bible. But see, the secularists, they reject the Bible as history. And uh, so they say, well, you know, there's not a single historical evidence that Jesus ever lived. Oh, yeah, I got, I got four historians right off the bat, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul. You know, but they reject that, and, and, but they keep digging, and everything they find backs up the, 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 the evidence for the Word of God, and nothing have they found that disproves a single word or verse of the Bible. So we have the unique construction, we have the historical accuracy, archaeological ac accuracy. Number three, the Bible's record of fulfilled prophecies. Now, this, would, this should blow anyone's mind. You know, people get excited about Nostradamus. You know, I remember when 9-11, when the towers fell, and people were trying to pull up these vague references in, in you know, Nostradamus and stuff. And, but, you know, when the Bible gives us prophecy, it's not some vague thing that, you know, might fit some sort. We're talking about people, places, things, events. <laughs> that God said what happened and happened. To the letter, on the date. You know, God said the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. And you read over in Daniel, Belshazzar's throwing that party because he's at the end of the 70 years and their kingdom hasn't fallen. Right? Remember that? Showing that throwing that big party brings out the Lord's vessels to drink liquor out of with all, his, all these concubines and all these pagans and brings Daniel in to read the handwriting on the wall. And Daniel reads the handwriting and said... Uh, Yep, time's up. <laughs> Seventy years, and you know what? Their kingdom fell in one night. Because God said when 70 years is up, 70 years is up. And when God says 70 years, He means 70 years. Yeah. And God even prophesied how, that it would be a man named Cyrus. Way back in Isaiah's time, before there was even a Babylonian or Persian empire, God called Cyrus by name. And uh, can you just imagine Daniel walking into Cyrus's office? And, uh, and by the way, Daniel promoted into the Persian kingdom, walking in. And said, I just want you to have this ancient manuscript of Isaiah, and it has your name in it. Just want you to see this. 
and what God said about you. And the next thing you know, Cyrus is saying, uh, there's a proclamation. Whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem, build the temple, go ahead. Where do you, how do you think that happened? You see, prophecy is one of the greatest evidences for the truth of the Word of God. And, and, and of course, hundreds of prophecies fulfilled to the letter in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself including even the time frame in which he lived according to Daniel's prophecy. So all these things give us more and more evidence for the Word of God. How about number four, the Bible's supernatural preservation. Preservation. <clears throat> it has been banned, burned, and banished, and yet it survives unharmed. Just the remarkable continuity of having the, the Masoretic text, the Textus Receptus, you know, when they're writing things by hand, and, uh, and yet... No errors. You know, they have this text where these all agree together, you know, and, and uh, just how God preserved that. And now, we have, of course, we have it in our King James Bible, but God's supernatural preservation of His Word. Number five, the Bible's timeless message. Timeless message. You know what's amazing about it? Here, here we are in 2020, and why have we come here this morning? We want to learn something about this book. And doesn't this book, it, it, it transcends time. It's just as relevant for us today as it was a thousand years ago. Maybe more relevant because we can really see things happening, can't we? You know, I, I said in our church recently, it's, it's, the irony is the closer we get to the Lord's second coming, the less we seem to think it's going to happen. But it is going to happen. And, uh, but the, the Bible's timeless message, it goes across eras, across borders, across cultures, across millennia. And there are missionaries in Africa and Asia and Australia and Europe and South America and Central America. They're in rich areas and poor areas. They're in the slums and the suburbs. And they're gathered around the same Bible this morning to learn something about God. That's the Bible's timeless message. And to thank God for that. Uh, number six on, the, on your, this back side of the page. Number six, the Bible's honesty about key figures. If you were Moses, would you write everything Moses wrote? I mean, if you were writing to, I mean, you think about his first audience, the people coming out of Egypt and going into Canaan, would you have written what you wrote about Jacob, Judah, Reuben? Wouldn't you, maybe you might have whitewashed that? But see, the Bible gives us the truth even when it's ugly about these characters. Uh, and I say characters, they were real people. I'm not saying they're not, not like they're fictional characters. I mean, these individual people. God tells us the truth even when it's ugly. He tells us the, gives us an honesty or an honest uh, report. Number seven, the Bible's spiritual life-changing power. That's evidence. It's changed my life. I didn't grow up in church. My wife and I did not grow up in church. We... I got saved when I was 15. My dad was an unsaved, out-of-church Baptist, <laughs> a Navy officer. But he, when he was 17, he, he went off to boot camp, and he said, my feet will never cross the threshold of a church again. And he, was, he didn't do it. My mother was a lapsed, unsaved Catholic. You know, and lapsed means totally out of communion with the church. And just, but none of our family was saved. Uh, and I was the first person that got saved. My brother was a drug addict. Uh, he was 10 years older than I. He died a few years ago. And I was the first person that got saved. And uh, I got saved. My wife was a bus kid. Uh, grew up in a broken home, just all over the place. And uh, so 
you know, we, we know the changing power of God through His Scriptures. My, I got saved. My mom got I led my mom to Christ. My dad started to come to church and uh, managed to become a deacon and treasurer. And then he got saved. It was nice, you know. <laughs> you, know you always got to keep your eye on the deacon and treasurer. Where's the treasurer? <laughs> he got, you know, he came to a point where he said, you know, I, I remember I got baptized, but I don't remember ever getting saved. And so he got it settled. And my parents have been in the same church in Weatherford, Texas for, for 25 years now. My brother got saved one night. He came to church, and, and I walked him down the aisle, and he got saved over on the, the side of the pulpit, got baptized, and got in church for a little while, but never had enough character to really stay in. Uh, and uh, he, he died very prematurely a few years ago, three years ago. But at least we know that he went to heaven. Amen. I have just have seen how God changed my parents. I've seen how God changed my life, our lives, our kids' lives. And to see our kids grow up in church and under the Word of God. You know, my wife and I, we enjoy being around the Chays and so many younger preachers now. And uh, it's just a blessing to see because so many of them are second generation. You know, they've grown up in church. Uh, they take to it like a duck to water, you know. And my wife and I coming out of the world and, you know, getting right into Bible college and, and never serving on staff. It's like, man, these folks have such an advantage. But, you know, that's what our, we want for our kids. We want them to have that, that, that advantage of having grown up in Sunday school and church and camp and conferences and VBS and all these things. Because we know the Bible has life-changing power, doesn't it? I tell the kids in our church, because so many of them, got, their families got saved and then they've grown up in our church. And I said, listen... God either saved you from sin or God saved you from sin. He saved your parents out of sin and He kept you from going into sin. And you ought to thank God for that. But it has life-changing power. And the best thing that all of us can do with our families is put them in these seats and put them in that Sunday school and put them under the preaching of the Word of God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because this book has power, life-changing power. All right, let's move on. We're just talking about the Bible this morning, amen? Some Bible terms to be familiar with. I'm just giving you some overview things. Some Bible terms to be familiar with. Number one, revelation. Revelation. That is God revealing to us what we could not know otherwise. You know, I, I believe in having reason, but there are, there are limits to reason. Okay? The human mind can only go so far in understanding things. What God gives us is the things we could never understand on our own. By ourselves, we worship birds and bugs and each other. By ourselves, we worship the sun, the moon, the stars. I mean, if, we, if we're left to our own devices, we do not come to the right conclusions. God has revealed Himself to us, and apart from His revelation, we could not know Him or know the truth about Him. So the Bible contains His revelation of things we could never know on our own. All right, so revelation. Number two is inspiration. That God recorded His revelation in writing. So our faith is in the written Word of God. Not just traditions passed down by men, but His revelation through inspiration, giving us His inspired words. And then the third, third blank there is preservation. That God has preserved His inspired words so that all generations can know His revealed truth. Now, inspiration without preservation is worthless. Okay, if, if God inspired it but didn't preserve it, then what do we know what we have? Now, we don't know, how can we have any confidence in this book if the best we have is what scholars say? What do scholars know? They're just people that can study and read books like we can. Okay? 
So I don't want to just go by what scholars say. I, I want to know that I have a preserved book. And hasn't God promised to preserve His words? Okay. Doesn't the Bible, didn't Jesus uh, refer to the word uh, uh, Moses and David? What they spoke was the Scriptures and was preserved for us? Of course it is. So we have inspiration, we have revelation, we have preservation. Number four is illumination. Illumination. God opens our understanding so that we can see what He has revealed for us in His words. That's the work of the Holy Spirit as He reveals to us the meaning and application of the text. That's why an unsaved person reading the Bible is not going to come to the right conclusions. They lack Holy Spirit illumination. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch can be sitting there reading Isaiah 53, the clearest passage in Isaiah concerning the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and say, what is the, who, who is he speaking of? And Philip said, do you understand what you what, understand is that what thou readest? How can I, some man, some man should guide me? They need someone to help them understand what God has said. And so that's where preaching and teaching comes in. It's the work of the Spirit of God to illuminate our minds so that we can compare spiritual things with spiritual things and understand the truth that God has placed in His Word. By the way, every time you read your Bible, it's a simple prayer. Lord, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We need His guidance in understanding the Scripture. Number five is interpretation. Studying the Bible properly and in context so that man's ideas do not displace God's intended meaning of the Scripture. Okay. Interpretation. That's where we come back to our text, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, private interpretation is the opposite of proper interpretation. Let's go get uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 2 Peter 3, 15. Verse 15 says, An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them in, the, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Now you can say amen there. Uh, some things are just accepted. Some things are hard to understand. I was reading a, a Scottish preacher who was he preached expositionally through books of the Bible and uh, just dealing with every verse. And he got to one passage and he said, uh, and I wish I, could, wish I had a Scottish accent. They read the verse and he looked up at his church and he said, well, having looked this verse square in the face, we shall now move on. <laughs> That's better than cutting it out. Well, I don't understand it, so I'm just going to say, no, there's just some things that are hard to be understood. And Peter acknowledged that. And, and, uh, but then he says... Uh, uh, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures. So there Peter said that the writings, the epistles of Paul, are scriptures. Okay? As, and he says that they rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. And so private interpretation is resting the scripture out of place so that, to make it say something that it doesn't say. Okay? So you're resting it out of its socket. You're, you're ripping the stone out of its setting. You are resting something out of its place because you don't like what it says. You want it to say something else. That's a private interpretation. And we don't have the right to give the Bible a private interpretation. It's our job to find out what God says and preach and teach what God said, whether we like it or anyone else likes it. All that matters what God says is the truth. Now, if you bring yourself into line to say, you know, I'm, I accept whatever God says, then you're, then you're aligning yourself with the Word of God. But some folks, 
that would mean leaving their church. That would mean leaving their denomination because their denomination teaches untruths. Okay. Now, there's plenty of examples. Uh, just remember this, that every word is in a verse. Every verse is in a paragraph. Every paragraph is in a passage. Every passage is in a, a book. Every book is in a testament. And you can't just rip one word or one verse out and ignore the context of everything else on that, on that topic. People do that with baptism to teach baptismal salvation. Baptism doesn't save you. Believing in Jesus saves you. The water does not wash away your sins. The blood washes away your sins. But there are entire denominations teaching that you are made a child of God, that you're regenerated by the water of baptism, and that is that, that by taking a couple of verses and ignoring all the rest to teach something that is not true. All right? If, if, John, if, that's, if you're saved by baptism, why doesn't John 3.16 say that? So, how did the, the dying thief get saved on the cross without baptism? All right, so some, some soldier dying out in the, on the field of battle somewhere, and if he can't get to a baptism, he's just tough luck for him. Okay. But that, those cases, irregardless, or regardless, the Bible teaches we're saved by, by grace through faith, not of works, not of religious works, not of baptism, not of, of church membership. None of, those, none of those things save the soul. We're saved by believing in Jesus Christ and uh, receiving Him as our personal Savior. But churches take those out of context. I, I was preaching in jail last year. And this guy, you know, it's amazing how many Christians are in jail. Honestly, I only found two people I could lead to Christ. Everyone else said that they were saved. And uh, this one guy came up to me, he's real flamboyant, he came up and said, he's acting like Elmer, uh, like Yosemite saying, pulling guns out. He said, I'm an Acts 2.38 Christian. Pow, pow, Acts 2.38, get it? 2.38 caliber guns. And because uh, Acts 2.38 is a verse Pentecostals use to teach the baptism and speaking in tongues and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I said, I'm a John 3.16 gauge Christian, you know, and, <laughs> Well, I haven't got anywhere with him, but he was, he was taught something that was wrested out of context. God wrote this book for a reason. He wrote what he meant. Now, I'm going to finish up. We're out of time. But the proven surety of the scriptures in verses 16 through 19, and uh, your last blank there is they were eyewitnesses of the majesty of his future second coming. And then verse 19 says we have a more sure word of prophecy. And, uh, and so thank God we have a solid rock on which we can stand. As long as you're standing on the book, you're standing on solid ground. I tell our teenagers sometimes, I say, you know what, you may go to college or someplace one day and you may run into someone who's smarter than me and smarter than your parents and maybe we're kind of dumb compared to the IQs of some, but you know, what we, what we believe is not based on my IQ, it's based on what God said. Okay. You, may, you may be smarter than I am, it doesn't matter. If I agree with this, I'm right. That's what I stand on. I don't have to be smarter than you. I just have to agree with God. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.